Welcome to this episode of the Disease to Shore podcast on the topic of equine metabolic syndrome with Dr. Teresa Burns of The Ohio State University. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanager. The Disease to Shore podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Burns, DPM, MS, PhD, DACVIM, as an associate professor in equine internal medicine at the Department of Veterinary Clinical Sciences at The Ohio State University. She received her DVM from Iowa State University in 2004. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thanks, Kim. It's a wonderful to be here. I'm so excited. Well, we're excited to have you on here, and this is an important topic. Um, I'm actually going to go back a little bit on some thing, something that was written in Merck Veterinary Manual to start this. We know that equine metabolic syndrome, also known as EMS, is a characteristic collection of clinical signs and clinical pathologic changes in equids that places them at high risk for developing laminitis, which is the most significant problem that results from EMS. We also know, and this is back to us talking, that equine metabolic syndrome can be really hard for veterinarians to explain to horse owners. So with your experience, how can vets best describe EMS to their clients? So that's a, a really important point. And, you know, one of the things that we we have recognized over the years in, in dealing with the magnitude of this problem is that having owner understanding is really important for compliance with recommendations, at least the best ones that we can make right now. And so having them fully on board with with what's going on is very important. And so I'm, I'm really glad you led off with that because that's probably the biggest fly in the ointment sometimes with managing these cases. So, you know, I think there's probably lots of different angles to take with this and everyone, especially if you have a lot of these horses in your practice, you've probably developed your own shtick, your own spiel here. But I think, you know, it's, I think it's easiest to start by, by bringing it back to something that a lot of folks recognize and, and, and identify with, which is how does it relate to diabetes in people? And, you know, people who are more familiar with the equine side of things recognize that there's some big species differences here. But if you were to say to a horse owner who probably has one or two diabetic family members, they probably have several pre-diabetic family members um, or friends, acquaintances, people in their sphere. If you said that horses with equine metabolic syndrome are very similar um, in, in some ways, physiologically, um, maybe not identical, but very similar to people with pre-diabetes, they have the same kinds of lab work. They have the same kinds of responses to ingested carbohydrate. Their risk, the, you know, the, the things that they're at risk for are very different. Um, people who progress to type 2 diabetes develop cardiovascular disease and stroke and cancer. But and in horses, as you mentioned, we're very concerned with laminitis. But the predisposing risk factors are similar. And so we'll usually start by saying this horse is very similar to a person with pre-diabetes. And we'll, we'll start the conversation and go from there. And a lot of times people get it because they know somebody who has that. That was a great description of that. And that's so it's so hard to sometimes just stop them long enough to get their attention and make them understand. Yeah, it's, this is serious and it can get worse if we don't do something about it. So let's then talk a little bit about how do you determine insulin dysregulation in a horse? Oh, 
this is the this is the next most important thing to talk about because if we're going to try and establish a diagnosis of EMS, which as you mentioned is is a constellation of risk factors, that constellation at the moment still includes what was officially included in the original definition of EMS that was that was put out in 2010 um, with the working group that published an ACBIM consensus statement, and that's obesity. Regional adiposity, plus or minus regional adiposity, increased risk of laminitis and insulin dysregulation. So if we're going to make a diagnosis of EMS, we have to document insulin dysregulation. It's baked into the cake of the definition. And so there are there are lots of ways to do that. And we we sort of say amongst ourselves, it depends on how how much you feel like you have to punish yourself, which test you choose, um, because there are some that are very, very cumbersome, very labor intensive, very expensive, but they give you a lot of information. And those are the ones that you'll usually pick up and look at in research publications on this subject. So things like the euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp, things like the frequently sampled IV glucose tolerance test, um, those no one's going to be doing that. Well, I'll take that back. I've done those on two clinical cases, two FSIGTs on clinical cases in my career so far at owner's request, by the way. So there are some people who are very plugged into this and <laughs> request those tests. But for clinical use, we'll usually start. So insulin dysregulation is merely some deviation of insulin and glucose concentrations, usually in response to carbohydrate from a normal or average value. And so it's pretty broad. Um, it can be almost a fixed trait in some predisposed breeds. It can be acquired temporarily. For example, if, if you give a normal horse uh, a dose of a corticosteroid, say a dose of dexamethasone for hives, you will give that horse insulin dysregulation for 24, 48 hours after you give that dose, even if it's a little one. Um, obviously it's a dose dependent effect, but it's insulin dysregulation shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be considered necessarily permanent. It can be changed. It's very heavily environmentally modified. And when we're thinking about environmental modifications here, we're almost always talking about diet, but there's some strong genetic predispositions to this as well, which we know because we have this whole, this very tidy list now of, of predisposed breeds and species, donkeys and mules also are really predisposed to EMS. So the, if we're going to document insulin dysregulation, the clinically applicable and, and uh, tests that have been developed for ease of use include um, simply measuring basal insulin and glucose concentrations from a single blood sample, usually after a period of dietary preparation. Um, so no concentrate feed for 12-ish hours overnight, and then nothing but grass hay only up until a couple hours, two to four hours, depending on what you read, um, prior to drawing the blood sample. And, you know, if you do that... Um, if that number is abnormal, then you likely can stop there. It's a very specific test, but it has very little rule out value because it's not very sensitive at all. And so um, if, the, if the concentration is quote unquote normal, we have lots of horses with EMS, lots of horses with insulin dysregulation that have normal fasting basal insulin concentrations. And so if that test is normal, we'll move on to a dynamic test. And there are two that are kind of in heavy rotation at the moment. Um, one of them, they, they actually test for subtly different things. So if you have, if you have it within your abilities, financial time, whatever to do both, that'd be awesome. Um, but most people will start 
with an oral sugar test, which is probably of these two dynamic tests, the oral sugar test and the insulin tolerance test, it's the one that probably most accurately um, plugs in all of the different variables involved in response of the animal to an enteral or oral carbohydrate load. So it's not um, it's not exactly physiologic to be cramming 180 mils of caro syrup into a horse's mouth, but it's it, it, it's closer to an enteral exposure to their usual diet than, you know, giving them a dose of insulin IV. So the oral sugar test is a, is a great way to start. It also, you know, it's very specific. It may have some dose effects. So the original test as it was, as it was developed um, was the dose is 15 mils of a light corn syrup per hundred kilos of equid. Um, and that, that, that's the test has been in rotation for a long time, but uh, some colleagues from the UK, um, Nicola Menzies-Gao and colleagues described a 45 mils per 100 kilo test that actually improves the sensitivity of the oral sugar test. Um, it is, so the test performance is improved. It is difficult. It's difficult to give that much care of syrup. Um, yes. You know, getting, getting in three 60cc syringes is a challenge sometimes. And if you triple that, um, there's some horses that would be no problem. But in our experience, many horses counterintuitively seem to not like this, which I wouldn't expect, to be honest. Yeah, that's that's a little that's crazy. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurement when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. Okay, so let's, you mentioned that some horses and donkeys and mules are more prone to EMS than others. What, what might those be that veterinarians can kind of be watching for those in the field? I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was, I was thinking before we had this discussion, what would be the things, if I was gonna think of like three to five bullet points, big ticket items that I, that I found really useful to know and that I would, you know, would love to share with colleagues. And one of them on the list is having an eyeball open for those predisposed breeds, not only because they have this increased risk of laminitis, but I'll tell you what happens when horses from predisposed that are members of predisposed breeds or species get sick and go off feed. The same kinds of metabolic predispositions that, that put them at risk for laminitis, i.e. insulin dysregulation, also puts them at risk for really horrendous diseases like hyperlipemia, fatty liver, which can be fatal um, if they go off feed. And so there are there's long term risks, which, you know, <laughs> diseases that cause chronic diseases that are associated with longer term risks of development of complications usually don't get people's attention very quickly. But something like hyperlipemia, which can happen over the course of a couple of days and make your make your horse, pony, donkey, mule very, very sick um, is is much more dramatic and much more acute. And having the, the same the same breeds and species uh, 
populate the predisposed breeds for both of those conditions. And so that's why I think if you have a, a new patient appointment and you see that it's an American saddlebred, or you're going to go see a, a whole barn full of Tennessee walking horses, which by the way, along with Arabians and Welsh ponies have been shown empirically to have genetic predispositions to insulin dysregulation. There's a lot of other breeds and species, as I mentioned, that we suspect strongly them to have genetic predispositions, but those three have actually been documented. Um, so if you see those on the schedule, knowing that helps you to target your annual or semi-annual wellness care knowing that they have that predisposition. So um, Spanish breeds, anything short, we say, pony breeds, donkeys, mules, anything gated, foxtrotters, saddlebreds, Tennessee walking horses, uh, pasos, uh, Kentucky mountain horses, um, Arabians, some warm bloods, any of the above. So even when healthy, and the thing that makes them unique, this predisposed breeds list is that a lot of them will have insulin dysregulation, even if they're not obese. And that is, that's probably something that actually segregates them pretty well into the, the predisposed breeds list. Any horse, pony, donkey, mule can develop EMS if it's, if it becomes nutritionally obese. Um, but those predisposed breeds, individuals in those breeds often are affected when lean. And so you can't rule it out if they're not obese. And that is a great point to bring up with this because that's um, it, it's hard enough to deal with owners when uh, when they have fat ponies and donkeys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have an air fern donkey that I rescue. <laughs> yes, I do. And I think donkeys are all air ferns. Come on now. There's a reason. They term, grow, by the way, there's the reason they live in the desert, right? Yes, so. exactly, exactly. They're going to survive the zombie apocalypse. Mark my words. They will. We say this is a, we say this is a, you know, a negative. And in some, in some ways it's going to, it's going to help them eventually. That's right. That's right. So, okay. So we've talked about some of them being more prone. We've talked a little bit about diagnosis. How do you treat these horses? I mean, I know some of it is medical and some of it is, is management. So treatment of horses with EMS all virtually always has to center around nutrition because for most of these animals, nutrition is their primary environmental exposure. Their primary environmental risk factor is nutritional. And so modifying their diet um, in a way that if they need to lose weight, they can, you can modify their caloric intake that way first. And then you can modify if they don't need to lose weight, you modify the, the source of their calories. So what we're looking to do since hyperinsulinemia has been consistently identified as a very important risk factor. Um, one of the few that's this consistent for endocrinopathic laminitis, what we're looking to do with our nutritional interventions is minimize postprandial hyperglycemia and thereby minimize the risk of postprandial hyperinsulinemia. So if we back up a step and think about the things that horses might eat that could cause an increase in blood sugar postprandially, most of those things um, include concentrate feeds and pasture. And concentrate feeds, it's possible to quantify the intake there. Um, with pasture, it's very difficult to do that. And so one of the first interventions we'll recommend making for horses with EMS or insulin dysregulation of any, for, any, uh, for any reason is to minimize 
the amount of concentrate feeds that contain greater than 10% non-structural carbohydrates on a dry matter basis and pasture from their diet. Now, this, this tends to make people very sad. Unbelievably yeah. so. There is, you know, horses living in a dirt lot with a, with, a, with a grazing muzzle on to eat their hay is not the natural order of things, right? And it makes people very upset, understandably. And so I think one of the things that we've learned over the last 10, 15 years dealing with this, uh, with this syndrome as knowledge has evolved, you know, 10 years ago, these horses were pulled off pasture and we said, it's for life. It's permanent. They don't get to have any more, no more grass for them. They can watch their buddies over the fence and everyone is upset by this. Fair enough. Um, and now, you know, we've created some benchmarks that doesn't change that they need to have their diet modified acutely. They need to be pulled off pasture, have their concentrate feed restricted, ideally eliminated, and have a low non-structural carbohydrate, ideally tested, grass hay only diet, plus or minus a ration balancer, depending on how rapid our progress is. And then after that, if they lose some weight, if their oral sugar test and IV insulin tolerance test results improve, and you know, timeline-wise, we're looking at re-evaluating body weight testing every four to eight weeks, roughly, depending on if they were laminitic, how, how emergent the situation is. If it looks like they are meeting their benchmarks and improving, then they can be cautiously reintroduced, modifying time and volume, the grazing muzzle, to pasture because there's a lot of good things about that there is there are social benefits there is this co this gentle self-directed exercise all the time moving around um there's a lot of benefits to it and so i think the landscape has changed a little bit with respect to that it's not um it's not quite so dire as it used to be fortunately well, that's, that's good news i'm sure that some veterinarians will like to pass on but again as as you mentioned there are benchmarks and you have to help your owners help the horses meet those benchmarks. So that's really prevention of uh, any of these issues will, uh, will mostly be on management as, as you have talked about. So if you have a predisposed breed, again, that's a great idea that if you get your call for the first time to go see one of these horses, is to make sure and mark on your list to do is to talk to them about insulin resistance and EMS. Yes, even when young, even when lean, you bet. So what else as far as prevention can veterinarians do to help these owners help their horses? Absolutely. So as far as prevention goes, um, analysis, I, I think anything that you can do to really empower people to monitor their own horses is really important. For example, um, we routinely, whether people own predisposed, you know, horses of predisposed breeds or not, we teach them how to do a body condition score according to the Henneke scale. And, you know, people get really good at it and they, they start to notice things like I turn my horse out on pasture and his crest seems acutely big and firm. Um, what should I do? We teach them how to palpate digital pulses teaching them the big things to look for is really important. It's, it's much easier and much more empowering for folks to look for these things ahead of time because you can, you can essentially deputize them yeah. to monitor patients for occurrence of a chronic disease, which has a tendency to be very insidious. Um, sometimes in 
in horses that have had, for example, um, a history of what often bubbles up as quote unquote seasonally uh, effective arthritis. It's not that, but a lot of times these horses will get a little lame when you put them on spring pasture. And what happens is people pull them off because they're sore. They give them a couple days of butte and then they're fine. And what's happening underneath this occult cloak of hoof capsule is hyperinsulinemia associated laminitis that sort of smolders over time, sometimes months, sometimes years, um, until it, it hits a point where it becomes more clinically apparent. And sometimes in patients that have that history, even if they look totally fine, they're not laminitic, at the time we'll get some radiographs of their feet. And very often we'll find evidence, both external in the hoof capsule and internally with remodeling of P3, with a little bit of rotation, um, we'll find evidence of what's been going on over time. And seeing that in stark black, white, and gray on a radiograph viewing screen is sometimes very important for people to, to recognize what has been going on. So giving people tangible evidence and explaining to the best of your ability what that means will really gain you a partner in managing uh, a horse that has risks for uh, chronic disease. Because again, chronic disease doesn't tend to be very exciting. It's not like, I mean, everyone knows how to react to someone that has a heart attack, but for, you know, someone that where if you have a disease that takes months to years to decades sometimes to develop, it's, it's hard to create urgency. And so tangible evidence is a way to create urgency. That's, that's such a great point. And is there anything else, Dr. Burns, that you would like to add in about equine metabolic syndrome? Yes, I will. I will add, you know, we've been getting a lot of questions, you know, back to when we were, we were talking about treatment, obviously nutrition, exercise, if horses are able, if they are, if they're not laminitic, obviously we do not recommend um, forced exercise for horses that are actively laminitic. They need to be sound for it, but exercise is an excellent insulin sensitizer. Um, and then there are lots of medications that people will use to improve insulin sensitivity, to enhance weight loss in horses with EMS. Um, two of the, you know, quote unquote workhorses on this on this front have been levothyroxine, um, which is used as a tool. It's not because horses are necessarily hypothyroid. It's to increase their basal metabolic rate, to encourage them to lose some weight if they need to. And it does improve insulin sensitivity in horses that are obese or lean. And so it's used to effect to meet those benchmarks and then they're weaned off of it. Um, metformin, is another one that, that is used pretty frequently for horses with EMS. It's, it's an insulin sensitizing drug, um, an anti-hyperglycemic drug in people. Um, at several points in the last five years, it's been the most prescribed drug in the United States. And so there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of clinical miles on metformin. And, you know, I think what, what we know about metformin in horses is much, much, much less than that. Um, but it does, in some animals, it does seem to improve insulin and glucose dynamics in ways that we need to learn more about, what, what we do seem to know about it at the moment is that it does seem to impede glucose absorption from the GI tract acutely. And so even if it doesn't have too much of an effect systemically on insulin and glucose dynamics, you can imagine that it might be very useful, especially if we're talking about that EMS case that was pulled off pasture and, and it's met its benchmarks. They've been working really hard. Let's just say it's a pasophenol because they're almost impossible sometimes to get to lose some weight, but they've Owners have worked hard and horses doing well, and they say, pretty please, can we have some pasture? And so if we haven't used metformin before, perhaps what we'll do is 
give that horse 15 or 30 minutes per kick an hour before it gets its 30 minutes or one hour or, or a, you know, two to four hours or whatever it might be of pasture exposure to blunt the glycemic effect of that pasture. That might be a really, a really strategic way to use that medication. And I'll, I'll, I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop blathering on here, but we've been getting a lot of calls about SGL2 inhibitors, um, venagliflozin, canagliflozin. Um, there's some, some work published out of Australia, Melody Delat, um, and Martin Stillens and crew have looked at the efficacy of this class of drugs, which they essentially cause glycosuria, glucose wasting in the urine, because SGL2, SGLT2 is expressed primarily in renal tubules. Um, so they cause a decrement in blood sugar and they're used for glycemic control in diabetics. But in ponies, um, which Dr. Delat and her colleagues have shown that um, venagliflozin actually decreases blood glucose concentration and insulin concentration in ponies may be useful in the future for preventing uh, hyperinsulinemia associated laminitis. So these drugs are still in development. There's actually a clinical trial that's ongoing with Dr. Frank and colleagues at, at Tufts in the United States. And so everyone stay tuned for more data on these drugs in the future. Um, one thing in, in people they do cause elevations in plasma triglyceride concentrations, which is, you know, I was talking earlier about the risk of hyperlipemia in particularly in predisposed breeds and, um, and species with EMS. Hyperlipemia is potentially a big complicating um, disease that we deal with if, if these animals go off feed. And so most of the time, it seems that in treating equids with SGLT2 inhibitors, their triglycerides don't get that high. But if you've got a patient that might be at risk for that, that's something to keep in mind if you happen to, to put a, a patient on one of these drugs. Plus, right now, they're really, really expensive. So I think that might, that's obviously not a, not a permanent situation, and that changes sometimes rapidly. So stay tuned on that front. There's hopefully going to be some more really useful information coming soon. Well, wow. As, as usual, whenever we get you on here, Dr. Burns, and we talk to you, whether it's for an article or a podcast, we learn all kinds of new things. Well, so, thank, so thank you so much for joining us today on Disease Du Jour. And we want to thank our listeners for joining us. And a special thanks to Mark Animal Health for allowing us to be able to do these interviews. And we invite our listeners to rate yeah, any of the episodes of Disease Du Jour, and you can find them on your favorite pod, podcast platform, or you can go to equimanage.com, and we have short articles and a player on each of those if it makes it easier for you to find them. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity, the Equine Network, LLC. 